Father, we thank you that we can rest for even a moment and be still before you as we enter into your word this morning. May it change us. Thanks for the reminder, even in the silence, to be and have faith like a child, to come to you and for you to receive us. So would you help us this morning? Would you give us soft hearts to see what you desire for us to see in and through your word? We love you. We thank you. Thank you for the resurrection and the truth of it, that we can stand firm on that fact and that our life is based on it. We ask that you would move. We pray it in your name. Amen. I was out at a restaurant the other night with my family. Server comes by, takes our order, very kind, and I ask a question, as I often do with the menu, because I'm a picky eater, and I ask the question, can this come without onions? And they said, yes, it can come without onions. I said, great, I don't want onions on it. Okay, great. Server goes away, we're waiting for our food, delightful that I can actually get this food without onions. The food comes, and what happens? There's onions on the food. So there's clearly a miscommunication. Like, I was expecting to get this food without onions. I thought that was clear. There's either a miscommunication from my end. I didn't clearly communicate to the server. The server didn't clearly communicate to the cook. There's some type of uh, unalignment in my expectations of the food. And, of course, I'm, like, disappointed. I'm like, this is, this is not, I asked for no onions. What happens when you don't get your expectations met? Have you been invited from anybody to help them move before? <laughs> a, we're moving across town. We got a bunch of people. You, one more could help. If you could show up at my house at 8 o'clock, here's the address. You go, you get there right at 8. You're the only one going like, I thought, I thought it was 8 o'clock. And you walk in, you knock on the door, you walk in, and nothing is packed. <laughs> and you go, I must have heard you incorrectly, because I thought you invited me to help you move, not help you pack and move. Has that ever happened to anybody before? <laughs> Misaligned expectations are problems for us. My wife and I do premarital counseling for couples in our church, among other pastors here in our congregation, and uh, one of the whole, we have a whole section on expectations, because moving into a marriage, we all carry these invisible bags with us of these expectations, and it's really helpful to unload them as best we can, so that when they step into this covenant called marriage, they are clear at what they're expecting, because they're just in love, and then, and then it's like, well, you're living with this other human that like expectations get missed all the time. And you kind of get into this space where you're going like, I, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I was expecting. I don't understand what's happening. Why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't anybody tell me? It's been said that expectation without communication, man, it leads to frustration. Isn't that true? Expectation without communication leads to frustration. And I think when we talk about uh, what it means to follow Jesus in the Christian journey, some of you are here because uh, you have friends or family that are getting baptized. Some of you are here because you just, this is the thing you do. You got pressured into coming with your family. You're going to have dinner afterwards. And I want to be really clear about the expectations to follow Jesus because I think there's some misalignment in our culture of what it means to follow him. And so some of us have grown up in this space and I've had 
what it means to follow Jesus communicated one way, and then we step into that and we go, wait a second. I don't, like, this isn't what I was invited into. Because for a lot of us, because of our culture, we kind of step into this idea of the American dream where things are good, you work hard enough, you do enough things, and you will just keep going up and to the right in the midst of your life. You'll have a bigger house, you have a better family, you'll have more money, things are just great, and then you get invited into this relationship with Jesus saying, listen, you need God. There's an expectation of death. Everybody has an expectation of death. We're all going to die. And so in the midst of that, when you get presented, hey, you need Jesus, you're separated from God because of what the Bible calls your sin, your mistakes, you're not perfect, he is, and you need Jesus because you don't want to go to hell, you want to go to this place called heaven, and you need to invite Jesus into your heart, you need to receive him. And so you kind of get this communication to you, this invitation to you of like, this is the American dream, you just sprinkle some Jesus on top so that when you die, you won't go to a place called hell, which sounds really terrible, you go to a place called heaven that sounds unbelievable. And you go, well, I'll sign up for that. And the request or the invitation is to believe, to believe in who Jesus was. But oftentimes, receiving this invitation is confusing, right? John 3.16, maybe the most well-known verse with this invitation attached to it in the last decade or so. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And you're going, yes, I'll take that eternal life. That sounds good. But again, often receiving this type of invitation, believing in this type of invitation is presented just as kind of this mental ascent. So we have to define the word believe a little bit here. Because sometimes we think believe is just, again, like I, I just understand who Jesus is or I mentally assent that he was who he said he was. It's kind of like me believing that Benjamin Franklin was one of our founding fathers, right? Like I, I, I don't have evidence for that. It's by faith I'm believing. There's things written about him. There's, there's truths to him. And, and so if I just believe that Benjamin Franklin is who he says he is, then, then I'm good. But it doesn't really affect my life. And so some of us get brought into this invitation of following Jesus that way, that you need Jesus for heaven and that, that's it. Like maybe you go to church or maybe you try to be a better person, but you're, you're, you're good. It doesn't really affect who you, your day-to-day -day life. I just don't think that's what the Bible teaches when it comes to understanding and following and walking with Jesus. And so we have to do a little work of what this word believe means in the original language uh, because believing is not just this mental assent to the idea of Jesus. Believing is probably better translated as believing into. So even in John 3, 16, this believe into Jesus, there's some type of action involved. And let me be really clear, it, I don't want to promote a works-based salvation or workspace believing, like I believe in Jesus and then I do all the right things to show him that I believe and then, okay, I'm good, I'm clear. I'm, I'm not talking about that. Clearly, that is not grace. The Bible teaches that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But this idea of believing does have this action with it. Believing into is an action, not so much of work, but of surrender, of going like, to believe into Jesus is to give your whole life to him. Which again, is not often promoted in our spaces in our country. 
And so we need to pay attention to what the Bible actually says about this invitation so we have the correct expectation when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. The cost to receive this invitation, the cost to believe in the person of Jesus is the cost to give up your life. It's a cost to die so that you can live. That's a different expectation than I believe in Jesus so that I don't go to hell but I go to heaven. It's a different expectation. It's a different invitation. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul is one of the early authors of the New Testament, and he has this encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in a powerful way. You can read about it in the book of Acts, and he writes a whole bunch of the New Testament, these letters to these churches, and he writes this letter to this church in a city called Philippi, and we, we call it Philippians. That's the name of the book. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says it this way. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Not only should you believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So to follow Jesus is to follow the path of his life. It's not just some mental ascent, okay, I got Jesus, I don't have hell, I have heaven now, eternity secure, and I just live however I want to live. That's not really believing into Jesus, but believing into Jesus to follow him, as he says, as Paul says, is to follow Jesus where he goes, okay, I want to take your whole life, everything about your life, and I'm going to take your hands and I want you to follow me onto this path. So what is the path that Jesus invites us to follow him on? I love Philippians, again, as, as we continue, the next chapter that Paul writes in, in chapter two off of what he says at the end of chapter one, which we just read, he says this in Philippians two, one through 11. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you've accepted that invitation, this is yours in Christ Jesus. And here is the path that Jesus takes us on as he models, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not equal, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him in the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what this invitation in this path looks like to follow Jesus. If you're really committing and believing into him, Paul Miller, who is part of a ministry called See Jesus that we're partnered with at Redemption. He wrote a book called The J-Curve, and he models it in this way. This is, you can put this next slide up. This is the idea of what Jesus is saying in Philippians chapter two, that Jesus goes down into death, he dies, and then the Father sends the Spirit to allow him to rise. 
Here's what this looks like in the context of Philippians 2, what we just read. We can go to the next slide. I know this is small, but Jesus, he doesn't account equality with God. He empties himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbles himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He follows this path down to death. Therefore, Christ, or, or, or the Spirit raises him up. God has exalted him highly. Name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the path we get invited into in the Christian journey. It's a path to death and eventually to be risen by him. So Paul gives this example of Jesus in Philippians 2. He talks about in Philippians 1, the expectation of believing into him so that you would suffer. And then in chapter 2, he models this. This is what Jesus does, and this is what we follow. If we're going to follow him, we follow his path. And then in Philippians 3, the next chapter, he talks about how this looks for his own life. And he talks about that he doesn't put any confidence in the flesh is the language he uses in chapter 3. And, and that word flesh, the Bible just talks about whenever it's talking about flesh, it's talking about your own power, your own effort. That's what the flesh is. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is saying, listen, I used to operate a certain way before my encounter with Jesus, and what it was is I would boast in these things that I did. And as I boasted in these things that I did, it gave me the accomplishments to feel a certain way, to have power, to have control. As I moved into certain spaces, that's what gave me credibility. But then he meets Jesus, and the accounting changes and how he operates his life. Look at verse 7. But whatever I gained, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's saying, I used to operate this one way when I would put my boasts on top of each other and that's how I got my worth. I have this encounter with Jesus and my accounting is now flipped. I don't boast, but I move into this death. I move into this downward way of life so that I can know Christ, so I can experience him, so I can follow him. And that's the call for us if we follow Jesus. Right, we as Christians, sometimes we use this phrase, or if you've heard Christians use this phrase, you, you give your life to Christ. You give your life to him. And again, some of us think that following Jesus is just this mental ascent into him so that we can go to heaven. I give my life to him so I can go to heaven and I don't go to hell. But this is a very different invitation and expectation of that following Jesus is about believing into him, giving up your life moment by moment, surrender by surrender to your power, to your control, putting it to death every single moment so that Christ can make you new today. That's a different expectation of the Christian life. 
And some of us got invited into following Jesus in this way that does not talk about this continually giving over your control to Christ. Maybe you give over control for a minute when you pray a prayer and you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you that you do need God because your sin has separated you from him. That's true. And you walk an aisle or you pray a prayer, you give up control for a moment, and now you're securing your salvation. And what do you do? You grab control back. And all of us do it. Even us that know this truth, we grab for control in our life. We want to be in control. We want to have the power because that feels safe to us. And the Christian invitation to follow Jesus to go, no, I'm giving up my control. I'm giving up my power. I'm going to follow Jesus as he takes my hands and he's with me down into this death so that he can produce life. It's a different way to think about the Christian journey. And as you think of that in that way, as you get invited with those types of expectations to follow Jesus, when you begin to embrace following Jesus in this way, there's three things that God begins to show up in your life. The first thing that begins to uh, become clear in that type of invitation and expectation is that God plants rising in your dying. God plants rising in your dying. Think about how the world works. Whether you believe in Jesus or ascribe to any other religion, things become alive when they die. How do you build muscle? You break it down to the point of it gets torn up so that it can rebuild itself. Uh, when you put a seed into the ground, what has to happen to that seed for it to produce something? It has to die. And the same thing is true with us as humans, the way that we're built into the fabric of creation. There's something about giving up your life. There's something about dying that produces new life and new growth. This is the expectations for us to follow Jesus. Again, if we look at that J-curve slide, it's this idea of going down into death, going down into dying, embracing that so that can, the Spirit can rise you. I have one friend named John who works for See Jesus, and um, he talks about uh, uh, the problem with that is a lot of times we want to skip the dip. So you can put that next time. This is, this is what we want to do. We're called into this death. We're called into dying. We're called into this situation. Something happens to us, and it feels like death, and we go, I don't want any part of that. And so we just want the resurrection. We want to jump over. We're not going to down into death. We just want to go to life. We want the cross, or we want the resurrection without the cross. And that's a problem for us. I was eating popcorn the other day when I was thinking about this Philippians 3 passage and Paul's kind of invitation to move down into death and not to boast in himself. And as I'm putting the popcorn in the microwave, I'm thinking about the popcorn and thinking like, there's no way I would eat this if I just took the bag and I opened it. It's just kernels. It just, that sounds terrible. Like, who would ever do that? But I have to add heat to make it change into the thing that I actually enjoy eating. And the same thing is true with our hearts. Some of us, we don't want to go down into that death. It feels uncomfortable. It feels scary. We want to skip the dip and just go over it. But we need the heat, and we need to follow Jesus down into death so that we can be raised to life. Paul Miller in his book says it this way. He says, if rising is embedded in dying, then not running from the customized dying that God permits in our lives is essential for resurrection. That's why endurance is the glue of the Christian faith. To taste resurrection, we need to endure death. An early exit cripples resurrection. 
And for some of us this morning, we're dealing with a type of death in our lives, circumstances, relationships, and we don't want to go down into that discomfort. We're all kind of allergic to the idea and the feeling of dying, and so we want to bypass it. But when we do that for the sake of discomfort, we begin to short-circuit what God might have for us. And let me put a caveat on this, even in this idea of God plants rising in your dying. Some of us, some of us are in situations where it's, it's okay to get an exit. Like some of us are in abusive situations. This doesn't mean that we don't get out of those things and we just kind of become a doormat. It doesn't mean that we don't have proper boundaries in our life. But for most of us, that's not the case. For most of us, we don't want to go down into death because we don't like being uncomfortable. And this is the invitation for us to go down into death, to release our power, to release our control regularly so that can, God can do something in and through us. So the first point as you think about those types of expectations with the invitation to follow Jesus is that God plants rising in your dying. The second is that God shapes and controls your resurrection, not you. You ever notice that in the story of Jesus, those who are familiar with the story of Jesus, he goes to the cross. We celebrated that on Good Friday a couple days ago. Do you know what Jesus doesn't do in the whole Easter story? He doesn't resurrect himself. And you're like, wait a second. I, maybe you've never thought about that before. But look at what Romans says, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who is raised, Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so Jesus doesn't raise himself from the dead. The Father sends the spirit and the spirit raises Jesus from the dead. And so for us to realize that th this point that God shapes and controls your resurrection and not you, man, this is just hard to understand because even if I go, okay, the way to follow Jesus is down into death, I can deal with that. As a former athlete, I'm kind of mentally, I like that, which is not okay, right? Like I, I want the pain, like let's, let's go. But I also want to control the resurrection. I also want to control the part that like Okay, I'm going to go through the pain, but God, okay, uh, the pain's done. We're done with the workout. <laughs> like, I should be receiving this. And I can't control it. And you can't control it. And Jesus didn't control his resurrection. He relied on the Father to empower the Spirit to come and to bring him life. And for us, man, that's kind of hard to stomach sometimes. Because again, we want control. We want power. We want our own timing. And we just don't know when God will rescue us from the situation that we're in. It's massively hard for us to understand. My friend John also said this quote maybe about two months ago, and it just, I can't get it out of my brain, mostly because I don't like it. And I want to like, that's, d d pretend I didn't hear that, right? Like, um, some of you, you're going to walk out of here and hope you you didn't hear what we're talking about today um, because now you're implicated, right? Uh, and it means like your life really should change for your benefit. But he said this. He said, uh, you cannot force resurrection. You have to wait for it. You can't force resurrection. You have to wait for it. And I hate waiting. Hate waiting, especially when it's painful and it's hurtful and it's confusing. But that is what we're called to do is to allow God to resurrect it, not us. The last thing as we look at God planting and rising in our dying, he shapes and controls our resurrection, not us. And the third is that God gives you hope in the patterns of resurrection. 
As we follow Jesus, as he gently and lovingly takes our hand down into situations of death, when he's with us the whole time, and we take step by step and going like, okay, I want to trust you, God, even though it's painful, even though I don't understand it, I want to trust you. I want to kill my control. I want to kill my ego. I want to kill my pride. I want to kill my power, and I'm going to walk with you faithfully. He begins to do things in you in the midst of that process. In the midst of the pattern of resurrection, my spirit gets resurrected. I can now go down into death. I can go into situations that don't make sense to me, that are confusing to me, that are hurtful to me. And I can go, no, 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 God's got me. (laughs) I believe in what he has done on the cross. I believe because the resurrection is true. That changes my spirit. That changes my attitude as I step down into death because of what is true. What Jesus has done is true. And that is the only place you can hit a real reset. That's the only place you can walk into death and still have life. That's the only option for us to go, I can still glorify God and have joy in the midst of my circumstances. No other religion will offer that. But the way Jesus has created us, he calls us. My spirit gets resurrection in the midst of my trial. The second is my seeing gets resurrected. I now see God using things in the death that I'm stepping into, that there's a dying, and then I go, okay. Just like Paul did in Philippians chapter 1, he goes like, because I'm in prison, I see it unlocking doors for the gospel, for the kingdom. And so just because it's uncomfortable to me, God is using it for the greater benefit. You start seeing things differently in the midst of the resurrection. Your spirit's resurrected, your uh, seeing is resurrected, and then your obedience is resurrected. As I continue to take steps of surrendering my control, my power, my ego, my pride, I begin to become more obedient. As God builds those faith muscles and I say, okay, God, I don't understand it, but I'm gonna take a step. I, don't, I wanna defend myself here, but I'm not going to, because you're my defender, and I'm gonna take a step of faith. He builds my obedience in the pattern of resurrection. He builds my spirit, my seeing, and my obedience, and hopefully, hopefully my situation's resurrected. Even if it's not in this life, Paul never gets out of prison. He ends up dying, but in the next life, We have a hope because the resurrection is true in Jesus that eventually our circumstances will change, that one day Jesus will come back and he will make all things right and he will make all things new. So even if you don't taste the resurrection this side of heaven, even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if you're in a spiral of death continually, one day it'll be made right. And that's what we cling to and that's what we hope to as Christians. What are the expectations when it comes to the invitation of following Jesus for you? Is it something you've been brought up and based in your family you grew up in? And is it only meant to, to, to be an exit from hell and an invitation to heaven? Or is it the invitation to the hope where you can find true freedom you long for? As you surrender to the one who took your place, as you follow him, as he gently takes your hands and says, I'm with you in this path, and he leads you down to a continual way of dying to your old ways so he can raise you in his. That's the hope and the message of Jesus that we celebrate this morning. And we're going to celebrate baptisms today. That's why we have this tank 
uh, up here on the stage, and even the idea of baptisms, as you'll hear videos of people um, that telling a little bit of their story and how they came to Christ and how, why they want to be baptized and how to pray for them. They're taking a step into the tank to visually uh, represent this J-curve reality that they're going down into the water, just like Christ goes down into death, and they're being raised up in the Spirit, this idea that it's not just a one-time thing that they're celebrating and making a public pro- uh, profession of their faith. They're going every day. What it means to follow Jesus, I'm going to give up my control. I'm going to give up my power. I'm going to continue to trust him to work in and through me through the power of the resurrection. That's why we celebrate baptisms. That's what we're going to do this morning. And Paul in Galatians chapter 3 writes this about this context of baptism. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither fail, or male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul Miller talks about this in his book, The J-Curve, with the context of, of baptism. Listen to what he says. He says, scholars believe that Paul is reciting an early church baptismal formula. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male and female, which was spoken as a person was being immersed, going down into the water as a wealthy Greek landowner, and you come up one in Christ. You go down as a poor Scythian slave, and you come up as a son or daughter of God. The slave and landowner are now equals in the body of Jesus. Our former identities have not only been erased, but been replaced with his We are now both in Christ. A new us has been created in Jesus. And that's the beauty that we're going to celebrate this morning in baptism. And in first service, there's going to be four people that walk up and get in this tank. And and even to give up your power and your control, this is kind of nerve-wracking in a room full of this many people to go like, that makes me nervous. You're going like, okay, it makes me nervous, but I'm going to take a step of faith. And it's not about my control. It's not about my power. It's about Christ's power working in and through me. And so as these folks get ready to, bat- get, uh, ready to be baptized, we're going to respond together corporately. And this is what we do every week here at Redemption Church. We're going to respond in singing. We're going to respond uh, in uh, praying. There's a prayer space off to the side if you need uh, time to pray for that. And we're going to respond in receiving the table the Lord's Supper. And so we would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have made that exchange that you've given your life, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, he's taken your sin, we want to invite you to the table this morning. We want to invite you to take a piece of bread, which is going to be handed to you from your brother and sister in Christ, and you just hold, hold your hands in an open posture to receive it, and then you're going to dip it in the juice, which represents his blood being shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And you remember, that's where you get your identity, that's where you get your worth, And even for us that have been Christians for a long time, we still walk towards these elements in that posture that I want to give up my control, I want to give up my pride, I want to give up my power moment by moment so I can attain his. And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to sing a couple songs in a minute. There's going to be an invitation to you to move towards the table. And then we'll go row by row, and you'll just walk down, and again, you'll hold your hands open, and you'll take a piece of bread, hand it to you, you'll dip it in the juice. Try not to get your fingers in there. I know some of you are not normally here. Like, we don't need your fingers ducked in there. Like, it's just the tip of the bread is enough. That'd be great. Um, And then you can hold it. You can take it right away. You can take it in the prayer space. You can take it to your seat, wherever you feel most 
comfortable. And then we will sing a couple of songs, and then we will hear the stories and watch people make a profession of their faith publicly as they go down into the water and come up, and it'll be a beautiful thing. So let me pray, and we'll get ready to respond this morning. Father, thanks for your kindness and goodness to us. Thanks for the expectations and the invitation to die so that we can live in you. Pray that you would help us do that this morning. Pray that we would experience you in a fresh way today as we respond to your good invitation to us. We ask that you would be with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.